Are you listening to this show hoping to get some golden nuggets to help you on your way to recovery? Well, great. I hope that you find them because that is exactly what this show is for. But if you really want to take your recovery all the way, completely commit and get on track with your goals, whether they be finally feeling overall healthy, finally getting pregnant, or finally getting back to training, you'll want to join us inside of the HA Society. Not only is this the perfect community to ask questions and get your support and the accountability that you so often need during these uphill battles with body image and understanding nutrition and incorporating exercise, but it's also a hub of exclusive resources for HAers. All of the HA podcast episodes are released in advance and completely ad-free, so you can listen on the go to the raw, unedited versions, uninterrupted. All of the one-on-one coaching calls, of which we have two a week in different time zones, are uploaded to our private podcast feed so that you can listen to events with practitioners and the past community calls as though they were bonus podcast episodes, because I know how much you love to listen to this kind of stuff. And in these calls, we cover requested topics like overcoming the weight gain fears, communicating with friends and family about our HA, diving into how HA works, and debunking the imposter syndrome that so many of us have around this diagnosis. There's also an entire resources section with lectures, workshops, and training from the past events that are hosted by experts like Sarah Liz King, Laura Lyons, Kaylee McDevitt, Holly Dunn, and many more. As a member, you also get direct access to myself and Coach Ashley in the DMs. So if you have personal questions or need individualized advice about your recovery, we're in there answering your questions in the DMs, as are all of our other members in the group who impress me week after week with how they show up for each other. It's incredible. It's like women are just all becoming mini coaches for each other. It's so good. The HA Society is really the place to be if you're going through recovery, no matter what stage you're at. Whether you have HA or you've got a few recovery periods, we have your back and we're all your new best friends. So come and meet us at thehasociety.com forward slash join. That's thehasociety.com forward slash join and the link is in the show notes for you okay on with the show hey ladies i am jumping in before starting the intro and diving into today's very exciting episode with the one the only Rini mcgregor before i do so i need to announce some things to you guys uh really important things personal things kind of sort of definitely I am super excited to let you guys know that I am pregnant. Woo! <laughs> um, at the time of this publishing, I'm like, I don't know, maybe eight weeks pregnant or something like that. Um, math is hard, but it's definitely early. And I I wanted to tell you guys because, I'm, well, I'm actually telling you before I'm even posting this on my personal Instagram People in my personal life don't usually listen to this podcast, I don't think. So, yeah, but I feel really safe with you guys, telling you guys that. And I know that you will be pumped for me because you know what it's like to want something like that. And to be going through HA and to eventually become pregnant is just such a huge deal. And as many of you guys know... 
I was not trying um, to get my period back to get pregnant. Of course, it was, you know, a factor in on the pros list to getting your period back was that this is becomes a possibility. But I, you know, really pursued getting my period back for all of the reasons that I should have it other than having a baby. And I just, I don't know, I was in therapy and my therapist was just so excited for me. She was like, this is everything that you've worked for. And so many other girls inside of the HA society got have gotten their periods back too. And I know it can be really hard. I'm sorry, girls have gotten pregnant too. And I know that it's hard for girls who are trying to get their period back to get pregnant to hear about other women getting pregnant. But I know that you guys know that I am not one of those people that it was just easy for. No, not at all. Um, and next week's episode is also uh, an episode a recovery story with another girl, Erica, from the HA Society who got pregnant after having HA for a long time. And she talks us through her method- <laughs> methodical approach to getting pregnant. It's something that when it happens in our community, it's just so worth celebrating because it just is just proof, you know, that this can happen for all of us. So I wanted to share that with you guys early and, you know, if it's too early and things go wrong, I want you guys to be there for me as well. So that is why I'm sharing that with you today. Um, yeah. And then also next week on December 14th, what day of the week is that? That is Monday. On Monday, December 14th, the HA Society is reopening its doors. We have all kinds of women in there now. We have recovered women, women going through HA, of course. Obviously, that's who I created it for. And honestly, I can't believe how many recovered women, practitioners, and also uh, girls that have just stayed after not only get recovering but getting pregnant, I am overwhelmed by just the mix of girls that we have in that group that are just there to support. Uh, we get on community calls every week. If you miss those calls, I record them and upload them like little exclusive podcast episodes so you can listen back and just keep learning even if you can't make it to the calls. It's really awesome. I release all of the HA podcast episodes there in advance, unedited, uncut versions. And you can just chat with us on the message board. You can DM with me directly. That is the only place where I will give direct support. I can no longer manage that kind of thing in the DMs. But of course, if you have a question there, come and message me. But if you want to get community support from people like me, if you want to join on the calls and chat face to face come to the HA Society the waitlist link is in the show notes you can just go to waitlist.thehasociety.com or over to the Instagram the link is in a bunch of places so you can find the waitlist there and I'll email you personally when it is open so you can come on in And then finally, I just want to remind you guys that Ashley and I are still taking on HA coaching clients. We are having so much fun basically doing HA life coaching. I don't know. Imagine you were on like a podcast episode call with me like this every single week and we just work through whatever the heck you're going through that week. I offer a 15 minute free call 
so we can see if coaching is the right fit for you and maybe answer any questions that you may have before deciding and if we're not a fit for you I'll also have a recommendation for another practitioner that you can work with so do not hesitate Uh, okay that was a lot of stuff guys join the wait list or book a 15 minute call whatever works for you and I'll see you on December 14th when the doors to the society open okay enjoy this episode with Reedy McGregor Hey, and welcome to the Hypothalamic Amenorrhea Podcast, an adulting advice podcast production. I'm Danny Sheriff, and this is the place to come if you care about getting your period regularly. This podcast aims to educate, inform, and keep you motivated on your period and HA recovery track. And quick disclaimer, guys, I'm not a doctor, and none of the information in this podcast is intended to replace Hey guys, before we jump into this episode with Rini McGregor, I just want to give you a heads up that the audio for this clip was not super awesome. I had to record it through Zoom and something was just happening up with the connection. And also I was just being a total weirdo at the very beginning and I had my microphone way too close to my face. Like I think I'm a rock star or something. I'm right up on my my microphone so I apologize for that and this episode's totally fine the audio just sounds a little more like am radio so a bit of a flashback to like being at your grandparents house and listening to am radio or something like that so I hope you enjoy either way it's going to be fantastic because it's Rini McGregor she gives us so much amazing information so I appreciate you bearing with us for that and enjoy hey everyone and welcome back to the hypothalamic amenorrhea podcast the hardest podcast on the internet to say. It's me here, Danny, and I am joined by a much requested guest that I'm super excited to be bringing to you. This is Rini McGregor, and Rini is a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian. She has 20 years experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. This includes Olympic para Olympic and Paralympic athletes and Commonwealth Games athletes. She works with individuals and athletes of all levels and ages. She coaches. Oh, you also work with coaches and you provide nutritional strategies to enhance sport performance and manage eating disorders. If y'all can't tell, I'm reading this introduction directly from her website because it's just way better than what I would be able to come up with myself. Rini is presently working with a number of national governing bodies, including Scottish Gymnastics, the Great British 24-Hour Running Squad, and the English Ballet Company. She's regularly asked to work directly with high-performing and professional athletes and has developed a dis- oh, athletes that have developed a dysfunctional relationship with food that is impacting their performance, health, and career. She's the best-selling author of Training Food, Fast Fuel Books, and Orthorexia when healthy eating goes bad let me say that again she's the best-selling author of training food fast fuel books and the book orthorexia when healthy eating goes bad she's the co-founder of hashtag train brave a campaign raising the awareness of eating disorders in sport providing resources and practical strategies to reduce the prevalence of eating disorders in sport And she's on the Red S Advisory Board for BASES, which is the British Association for Sport and Exercise Science. And she sits on the International Task Force for Orthorexia. 
always Welcome. Really embarrassed. <laughs> Thank you. It's always like when she does this, and it's like, oh really? my god, really? I'm just a normal human being that does no. her job. <laughs> well, that's that's what happens when you've just been doing it for 20 years, right? You yeah, just like yeah. Acu- accumulate these things. I have literally never read anyone's intro. I usually get them to introduce themselves, but there was just I just figured you'd forget to say half of this stuff. <laughs> I, yeah, I would just said I'm Rini McGregor and I'm the sports dietitian, <laughs> and here I am, and that would have been pretty much it. So <laughs> I know. I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. <laughs> oh well, welcome. I'm I'm so honored to have you here. No, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really pleased to be here from my kitchen table. And um, yeah, I've just warned you guys, if you hear strange noises, I have a dog and he has a tendency whenever I'm doing something like this to just go nuts for half an hour. So I will try to keep him calm. He's sat under the table at the moment, but let's see what happens. But he's, he just, I think he just wants to be part of it all, to be honest. Oh, all good. Well, what's your dog's name? He's called Bailey. Bailey. Well, if y'all hear Bailey in the background, you know, it, it happens to the best of us. It's totally fine. <laughs> so Ring, on this podcast, I speak to all kinds of practitioners and prep professionals to help women with HA understand not just what's happening in their bodies, but what approach or even what type of professional might be right for them. It's been requested many, many times for me to try and get you on the show. And here you are, and the listeners are very excited. So I just really appreciate you coming on and giving people an idea of just from your experience and your perspective. Oh, my pleasure. Absolute pleasure. It's, it's a, I think it's a very misunderstood and under-discussed topic. So I'm really pleased to be raising awareness about it. And if I can help people in the process, then, then that's great. Yeah, thanks. And um, that just makes me think as well, it's been coming up for me that some people think it's also a lot more complex as like a medical condition or disease than I personally think it really is. So like a lot of people or health coaches are afraid to kind of talk about it. But in that sort of feels so strange to me because it's like, those same people are not afraid to talk about like pregnancy tips or not afraid to talk about like weight loss tips or performance tips, but they're afraid to talk about HA and getting your period back. And I kind of feel like it all needs to be hand in hand and all needs to be in the same conversation. But what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think hypothalamic amenorrhea is, um, it is a medical condition. Um, it can happen for a number of reasons. But I think the problem is, it, particularly in, the, in the, I suppose the area I work in, which is mainly individuals who are very, very sporty, it's almost seen as accepted. And so then people don't want to question it or, or discuss it or, or look into it. But it shouldn't be accepted. It's never okay for a woman to not have a period. Never. Unless they're pregnant or breastfeeding. Obviously. Right. Um, but, but from a... From a medical point of view, there should never really be a reason why you don't have a period. Um, so I think like, from my point of view, it's helping people to understand, well, why is it happening for me? Because everybody's gonna be different, you know? Like it can be for different reasons. And, and it's like, it's not again, what people automatically assume that, you know, you have to have lost a lot of weight or that you, um, you know, you, you 
you know, there's been some major changes to your diet. It could be these things, but it could be so many different things. And I think it's helping people to realize that, you know, your hormonal system is so, so critical to your overall health. Because that's the other thing I think is often misunderstood is that when we think about the hypothalamic pituitary axis, which controls all our hormones, and all our hormones basically control every single biological process going on through our body, right? So if you don't have a period, that would mean that you're switching off your reproductive hormones for some reason. But that then also has an impact on your other hormones like oxytocin, like growth hormone. And then this has another effect on whether you perform well, whether you adapt to your training, whether you have your mental health, you know, so they're all interacting. And I think that's the thing is that one of the things that slightly annoys me about science and medicine as well is that everybody tends to have their own specialist area and it's just fixating on that one thing. And really, I'm not saying you can be an expert in everything because you can't, and I'm not either, but you should understand how to join the dots at least and then know how to signpost and where to signpost to. Okay. I appreciate that take. That, that's awesome. So I want to dive into some of the questions that I have lined up for you today. And I mean, let's just get ahead with it. I know that you are very experienced and you have a lot of accolades and perhaps you're one of the most respected voices in the HA women who exercise a lot area. Which is probably pretty crazy because that's just like such a huge area and there's like not that many voices in it and you're one of the biggest voices. So that must feel kind of surreal sometimes. But do you have your own history with this kind of situation or condition? Yeah, I mean, my it's it's not quite as, um, I suppose it's not as straightforward in the sense that I did have an eating disorder when I was a teenager, um, and I, so I was 13, so I, I basically got my period when I was 13 and a half, like kind of fairly bog standard for most teenagers. I only had two, and then I got very sick, basically. Um, and so for five years, so until I was 18, I didn't have a period at all. And I was, you know, I was getting help. I was getting some support. But, you know, an eating disorder is a very complex problem. And I probably didn't get the right support. Now that I know what I do with people, I probably didn't get the right support. But at 18, um, I was obviously just on my way off to uni and still didn't have a period. Um, But also because of my history, I did have quite a forward-thinking GP who at that stage was really worried about my bone health because it's been five years not having a period and through my kind of critical years, adolescent years, where you'd be putting down your bone density, really. So um, he decided to do a DEXA scan, a bone scan on me, and let's say my Z score. So we do Z scores because it's age-matched, so it helps to see where you fit in with the rest of the um, people your age. Let's say my Z scores were really bad. Like I had osteoporosis in my spine and I had osteoporosis in my hip, which at 18 is not ideal, really. Um, so at that stage, and we have to remember, I'm, I'm a lot older than probably most people listening to this podcast. You know, at that stage, the, the treatment at that point was, oh, we'll put you on the contraceptive pill because we're giving you some estrogen so that will protect your bones moving forward. 
So I just went on the pill because that's what you do, right? You do what you're told. Um, I went off to uni, um, did my first degree, then did a second degree. And finally, I kind of, I suppose I was 20, I think now, 23. By the time I got into my first job, I was 23. Um, and I then met my now ex-husband, but I met him when I was 24. And um, I think it was around like, probably the age of 26, I was starting to get some really bad headaches and like really bad migraines. And at that stage, they were sort of saying, if you have migraines and, you're, and there's a his, family history of DVTs, you shouldn't be on the pill. So I went to my doctor and they said, okay, yeah, you're gonna have to come off the pill because obviously it's, it's a problem for you. Um, so I, I guess maybe I was a bit stupid. Um, and probably irresponsible but I just assumed because that I hadn't had a period since I was 13 at this stage um well it'd be fine nothing nothing will happen and you know my my ex-husband and I had the conversation and we're like yeah yeah we'll be careful but obviously you know um if it does happen it's fine but it's unlikely it'll happen because it never happens especially when you just come off the pill it's all fine mm. and I fell pregnant straight away so I obviously did ovulate in that first, in that initial few weeks when I came off the pill. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, so you've got to remember, it's like 13 years later after I've had my first period. Um, so my, my story is quite unusual because the thing is, I didn't realize that I could in, at that point because it'd been so long. And I did fall pregnant and I had my first daughter who, you know, is, is brilliant. And I have no regrets about having, having, having her at all. Um, and and then actually I then breastfed so I didn't get my period back again and then I had I felt pregnant again so what I'm trying to get at is actually by the time I finally got my period back I was probably um 29 <laughs> <laughs> that's so weird yeah so, so what I'm saying, I, mean, I don't think people talk about this at all because I, I get a lot of women that come to me who say, I've been off the pill for several years. I really want a baby and, you know, what should I do? And, everything. and mine was such an unusual story in the sense that obviously after, during my time as a, you know, in my 20s when I was back working and I, I definitely was, I was, I was restored. I was well, you know, like I wasn't underweight. Um, obviously it was enough to have restored my hormones, but the thing, that's the thing about the pill, right? You never know, you don't know what's going on underneath it all. Yeah. So, so this is why I suppose, you know, it's difficult, it can disguise so much. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, I think it's really important for people to realize that you, you, know, you, you can be completely fertile even when you're on the pill and come off and, and, and it happens straight away totally there's there's basically like every case example ha has happened and I run this like I have a community called the HA Society where we just get together and support one of the girls most recently she has just been desperate to get her period back um and instead of it ever coming she just got pregnant straight away and I mean this just happens more often than we realize and it's also just such a testament to how resilient our bodies are and how much they do want to ovulate. Like they're always, it's always trying to make it happen as long as you give it the environment it needs, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And I think I just, I also want to give people that hope as well, because I know so many women 
do worry that being on the pill means that they might not be able to have children or, or they won't know they can have children. And obviously, we don't know, but in a lot of cases, it's completely fine. And also that this post-pill amenorrhea is not a thing. Because a, a lot of people will go back to the doctors and say, oh, well, I've been off the pill now six months and I still haven't had a period. And, and the doctors might turn around and say, we've heard it a lot in our clinic. Oh, it's fine because it's still early days. There is no such thing as a no. It should come back, and if it doesn't, there's an yeah, right. So it it should come back, and if it doesn't, there's a different problem underlying this issue. Yeah, and really, your your pill is just masking what's actually happening. Yeah, in your menstruation. Love it. So interesting. So question number two for you. I am careful to tell women that they can work out and still get a period. However, I do kind of err on the side of like, like we were just saying, there's an example of every situation. Um, And there's definitely people where it does happen. And the question I get the most, and I bet you do too, is can I keep working out? Can I please still work out? How much training can I do? How much do I really need to reduce that kind of thing? Do you see any patterns or correlations amongst the women who are able to continue with some sort of movement and still get their period back and the women that need to take like full rest? Yeah, that's a good question. Do I see a correlation? Um, I'm not sure about correlation, but I think every case is different and that's the bit that's really important. So you can't say, oh, it's okay to train because for some women it isn't. Mm-hmm. And, and from my point of view, the way we would make that decision would be based on a series of blood tests, so looking at hormonal markers, but also getting the full clinical picture, like what, is, what has happened to this person? What has been going on with her? How much training has she always done? How much training has she done recently? What does her food intake look like? Is she doing fasted training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think I can say yes or no, but what I will say is as much as possible, we would try not to stop someone from doing any training. I know that there's a whole all-in method and I, I don't think that's necessary for everybody. In some cases it might be, but I think in the majority of cases I have worked in, we haven't needed to go as far as that. There are, however, some sports that I think probably do need to be stopped and, and it's really difficult. So I definitely see the running in particular seems to cause a lot of stress to the body and seems to be the one sport that most women will need to stop in order to get their period back. It's very difficult to, um, I think it's, I mean, I'm a runner, so I know it's, it's very, very difficult to reduce the intensity down, you know, because once you start running, most of us have like a, a running pace or a running kind of um, I suppose, yeah, running state that is kind of comfortable for us. And although that's comfortable for us, it might still be too much in terms of creating stress in the body and meaning that your, your, you know, your HPA axis is going to still stay shut down. So as much as possible, I try not to stop people, but there are going to be certain situations where we do have to. And, and in those cases, we'll always try and provide them with an, an alternative. So obviously, one of the things we know is that when people have HA, 
estrogen levels are going to be quite low, which also has a negative impact on your bone health. So one thing that we do encourage people to do is strength training, um, but not like big hip stuff, not like, you know, low weights, high rep, not that kind of thing, but much more higher weights, lower rep, lots of rest. But that's really, really good, not just for bone health, but also for neuromuscular control, which is only going to help you in your sport, whatever you're going to do moving forward. So like I said, every case is different. The intensity of training seems to be the critical thing. Um, and knowing how to manage that is going to depend on where your psyche is in comparison to, you know, what, like, why do you train? What's the reason behind your training? How, how does it serve you? And, you know, I think if you can, if it's, un, it's again, it goes back to basically doing a full assessment of someone and working out, are they, are they able to tame this or are they such an obsessive nature that that's just not going to be possible? And, and you know, and that's, that's the, real, the real, reality of it. I have so many questions right now about where to, where to start with this. Okay. So when you say it's like individual approach, you, you kind of have to look at what everyone's doing. And let's take that example where say, cause this is also what happened to me. I wasn't a runner. I've never run a day in my life, but I did a lot of weightlifting and uh, a week with, with the high intent, like not high intensity and so but like uh, heavier weights, lower reps, but quite a number of sets across a, you know, a training session. So you would recommend to many people, I suppose, like, let's change it up. Let's do some strength training. But to someone who lost their period doing strength training, you, I assume, would have a different approach to that. Maybe just like less of the strength training or what, how does that look for athletes? So again, it, it depends on, a lot of it will depend on also, don't forget the fueling around the training. Mm -hmm. So yes, we've had lots of women who have come in with amenorrhea who've done strength training, but they've also done fasted strength training or they've gone keto or they've mm -hmm. not recovered properly immediately after their training. Like it's not, and that's what I mean. It's not just about training. It's not just about calories in, calories out. It's so specific for the individual. And, and that's why, like, you know, often if I put a Q&A box out on Instagram, the question I'll get asked again and again and again and again is, how do I get my period back? So I don't know. I can't tell you because I need <laughs> to know you. I need to know yes. what's on for you. You know, it is. And, and that's also why I get a little bit, I do get quite frustrated because there are a lot of people who are not qualified putting information about out about how to get your period back from HA and then like how to recover from HA and they maybe using their own personal journey, their own personal experience, which is fine. Obviously we, we all have our own personal journey, but you have to understand, like I said, right at the beginning, how it all interacts. You know, it, it's all very well saying, well, you need to eat 2,500 calories. Well, actually for some women, that's not what it's about. It's about something completely different. For some women, it's not about they have to hit a certain weight. It might be they actually have to hit a certain body fat percentage. Like, you know, a study recently showed that most women need to be a minimum, and it's a minimum of 21% body fat in order for their periods to return. Minimum. So that could mean that you're somebody genetically who actually needs to be more like 25 or 26%. 
but we don't have the numbers. We, we don't know because everybody is so unique. And that's the other thing is, you know, they say, oh yeah, but my friend, you know, they do this and they do that mm. and they still got a period. And it's like, well, yeah, but why are you comparing yourself to your friend? Because your genetics, your background, your ethnicity, you know, your lifestyle is very different to theirs and, and you can't compare. You, know, you, you can't. I love it. I appreciate everything that you just said. And I, I completely agree. And like, let's talk a little bit about those, um, those different reasons you were talking about. Like, yes, it's not just as simple for many people. Sometimes it is just as simple as hitting 2,500 calories. And that's more just because it's like that person was probably in a straight calorie deficit or they got lucky and increased their calories with something they were like nutrient deficient in, or, you know, the liver. But what are those, what are those other factors that you're talking about? So when we look at somebody who has HA, often we can tell from the blood test results, mm. what's the possible cause, right? And, and often you can tell if, if the, the sort of the controlling hormones are really flatlined, then that would probably suggest that somebody's in very, very low energy availability and probably very low in weight, to be honest. Sometimes only, you know, only luteinizing hormone is very low. And if luteinizing hormone is very low, then that would, again, indicate that this individual is probably doing too much training. So we, this is what I mean. You have to do a full assessment of everything. And so it's understand, and that's what I mean. It goes back to having the clinical knowledge, having the clinical understanding of what is it that these tests are telling us, as well as doing the full history. And I think this is where often women get so um, frustrated because they'll go, to the, they'll go to a gynecologist or they'll go to a doctor or, or whatever, and they'll say, look, I haven't got a period Um I haven't had one since I came off the pill. Um, they might look okay physically because they're not underweight. And the doctor would go, oh, you've got PCOS. Without really looking mm. at or doing a full history of, well, actually, you know, when was the last time you had a period and, and how much, what has changed since then? And, and have you always been this weight or have you lost weight even? Since, you know, like you have to look at everything. So the weight is one indicator, training load and training intensity is another indicator. Energy availability, obviously, is a key one. Carbohydrate availability, particularly, is a critical one, which a lot of women are so fearful of. Um, body composition is another one. So there's, there's so many things. And then also looking at the, the kind of general trend and history of what has been going on for this person. Okay. And when you when you talk about like uh, the body composition slash body fat availability, um, A, uh, do, you, do you know what it is about body fat that's important? So again, we have another hormone in our body fat called leptin. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, in a, in, a, in, a, in a person who has no issues with HA or no issues with energy availability or anything like that. What normally happens is that when, um, when we're hungry, so after several hours of not eating, the body will, will, will realize that it needs food and it will, 
increase your level of ghrelin, which is your appetite hormone. So it tells us that we're hungry. And when ghrelin is high, leptin will be low. Okay. And that basically is saying it feeds back. And that's the beautiful thing about hormones. They have these beautiful feedback loops and it will feed back to the hypothalamus saying, there's not enough energy in this body. I need food, which is why all these levels are going up and down. And as soon as you then feed your body, ghrelin goes down, leptin goes back up, and we have equilibrium. We have balance and everything goes back to normal until the next time. So we have this, this lovely kind of cycle that works for us. Now, if somebody has gone down the path of severe restriction mm -hmm. or um, has lost a lot of weight, often leptin will drop at the same time. And so when leptin is very, very low, it will constantly be pumping out that signal that there's not enough energy here, there's not enough energy here, there's not enough energy here. And it can take quite a long time and quite a lot of, of energy before leptin goes back to normal. And leptin seems to be the limiting factor in whether some, when someone's period comes back. Hmm. So it, it's quite a critical, um, quite a critical hormone. And, and the problem you'll see is, that especially like when you're working with somebody who's been very restrictive or who has lost quite a lot of weight, is that if they're not consistent with their approach, and this is, this is really important, because you know what often happens is people will get to a certain point where they're like, okay, I'm comfortable here. This is where I want to stop. I don't want to go any further in terms of my weight, in terms of my body composition. And they may start to pull back again. They may start to restrict a little bit, not much, but a little bit. They've never let their body completely overcome that threat of starvation. And so leptin never quite goes back. And that will be literally the limiting factor for most women in terms of whether their period comes back or not comes back. Because it's all, I say that, I mean, it's all, all connected. They're all, all the hormones yeah. are moving up and down at the same time. But, but the leptin does seem to be quite an important factor in terms of when, so this is why previously we were told we need fat for our hormones because leptin mm. is found in our, in our body fat. It's kind of, we don't need fat for our hormones. We need carbohydrate for our hormones, mm -hmm, okay. but we need a certain amount of body fat in order for our hormones to all work efficiently. And we need the body to know that the threat of starvation has disappeared in order for that to go up. So this is kind of where the whole like throw it all at the wall, 250 calories all in method sort of like that's where the logic that comes from, right? Like eat a lot of everything. So you're getting all the macronutrients so that you're basically getting body fat, getting carbs, getting healthy fats and increasing your luteinizing hormone and or like yeah. increase. Yeah. FSA <laughs> from that yeah. To yeah. put it yeah. in like my very yeah. layman's terms. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have some more questions on the nutrition side of things. So, and you've already touched on a bit of it, but if we were to make, if we were to think about macronutrient intake, so carbs, proteins, and fats, do you notice that a particular macronutrient is under eaten in general by women? Like you're saying carbs are super important. Fats are super important. For me, I was very low on fats and very high on carbs. Cause I was like, working with nutrition coach and doing sports. So they were like, I had plenty of carbs. So for me, so there's like two different, I assume there's two different camps of people, low fat, low carb. And 
like what's your experience been with working with with women there and what are you seeing as the is the prominent the prominent issue I the, the prominent issue if I'm being completely honest Danny from my point of view from what I've seen in my clinic has been fasted training oh, okay from that mm-hmm. it has been the biggest biggest reason why people's periods haven't come back can you define like, fasted training yeah. for us so basically when somebody does usually it's first thing in the morning you know that's what we're noticing is first thing in the morning early morning um without any fuel at all in the system nothing um and in, even if they're having like a handful of nuts or something it's not it, it does seem to be that that carbohydrate availability first thing in the morning seems to be very, very critical in terms of ensuring that hormones work properly. And if you go way back, like if you look at the studies, I think it was, it was quite a long time ago now, but it was like 19, I want to say 86, but it may have been 89. Um, but there's a study from, um, it's called the Vermont study, and it looks at the, the role of, carbohydrate particularly in hypothalamus in 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 the hba axis and what they found was when carbohydrate intake was low then the hba axis didn't work very well and your t3 so your one of the thyroid um, hormones was very very low and when that's low then everything's down regulated so the body goes into preservation mode it goes into shutdown like feel like your phone you know like when you battery is on 20% and it starts to shut everything down. It's, it's like that. So, so we know, and obviously, yes, there's no, there's not been any recent studies on this, but you know, physiology of the body is not going to change in 20, 30 years. Like that is the physiology of the body. That's how it works. So we know that carbohydrate availability is very, very critical for the correct functioning of the hypothalamic pituitary access, which obviously, as we said at the beginning, controls all our hormones. So from my point of view, yes, many, many women are fearful of carbs. Many, like I would say over half are not eating enough carbs. The other thing that I find fascinating, um, and maybe you've seen this too, is that since the rise of the plant-based diet, more and more people are using vegetables and beans and pulses as their carb option, because we're told, they're carbs, so mm. it's fine. Except again, when you look at nutrition and you look at what vegetables are, they are, yes, they, they contain starchy carbohydrate, but they mainly contain cellulose, right? Plant root, which is not digestible. So you don't get any actual carbohydrate from it. So a lot of it is insoluble, you know, it's a lot of fiber, you don't digest it. So you, so you kid yourself, if you have a piece of steak and your vegetable, let's not say steak because it's plant-based, so that would be wrong. But, you know, you have your chickpeas and your vegetables or whatever it might be, your tofu and your vegetables. A lot of people have like, you know, yeah, tofu and vegetables. They think they've ticked all their boxes and then what, I'm eating enough, like I've got carbs here, but they haven't. And, and this is where it, another thing, big trend I'm seeing, I'm not saying you shouldn't be plant-based, I'm not saying that for one second. I'm saying you just have to be really mindful that you don't displace actual complex carbs like rice and pasta and bread and oats and potatoes and couscous. I remember them all. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't displace those 
with vegetables because we definitely see it. And, and the thing about also, the other thing about the plant-based diet is it's a very voluminous diet, right? It's very, very filling. And so again, you then don't quite hit your numbers, especially if you're doing a lot of training. So, so to answer your question, do I see fat? Do I see carb? I mean, it's a mixture. Like you said, it's, it's again, there's no one absolute. But the things that we're noticing are definitely fasted training is a no-no. Definitely the timing of your, your nutrition around your training is really, really significant. And also being mindful of where your source of carbs actually comes from. They're all quite important things. Yeah. It's so interesting that we've kind of gone in this roundabout. Um, it's like we actually had it right or a, we were doing a better job of it, what, like 20 years ago? In a, in a sense, I'm sure there was many other, and many other ways we could improve, but the pyramid, there's been a huge argument that the pyramid, the food pyramid is completely off, but it almost sounds like it's not as off as we're all thinking. And sure, maybe like super sugary cereals and that kind of thing are like not the best choice, but what that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about like whole grains, whole food sources of like bread, pasta, potatoes, quinoa, rice, I mean that the people listening to this know what what's what so yeah, that's I, that's really interesting and i think the thing is unfortunately the car, like carbs has got a bad press right because mm. when we if you think about if you think about things like sweets and sugary drinks and um, you know cakes and pastries and things like that like not that there's anything wrong with eating any of these things, mm. but it's very easy to overconsume these things, right? So if you think about like one of the biggest problems we have, especially in the UK, is has been the, 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 you know, the intake of sugary drinks because you don't even realize you're consuming the carbohydrate. You don't even realize that that's how much sugar is in, in, a, in a can of Coke or in a can mm. of Monster or in a can of Red Bull or whatever it might be. You, you don't even realize, right? And, and, and it's very easy to guzzle three, four a day. And, and, and that's where the problem is in the sense that that's where mm. you get the overconsumption of calories, really. It's not just the sugar. It's not just the carbohydrates. The overconsumption is so easy to consume, but then it's too much for what the body needs. And obviously then it is, then it is um, deposited as, as excess, right? Stored as excess. But when you eat things like pasta and rice and potatoes, and one of the reasons that like initially 20 years ago it was part of the pyramid and it was really important part of it is because we knew these things actually filled us up and they made us feel full and you couldn't eat loads because they make you feel full. You know? And that's the other thing I find really interesting is that because so many of the women I work with have avoided these foods for so long, when they start eating them, they're like, oh, I'm really bloated. It's like, well, you're not bloated, that's just normal, right? That's just what food's meant to yes. do. It's meant mm. to make you feel full. That's the whole point. Um, but I think, again, we lose, we've lose, lost sight of it. Complete lost sight of it. And we mustn't forget that when you have something like hypothalamic amenorrhea, most likely you have had low energy availability. There hasn't been enough energy in the system, which is why hypothalamic amenorrhea has occurred in the first place. 
So if there's not enough energy in the system, then it's going to start affecting other areas too, including your digestion. So your digestion does slow down. You do start to feel uncomfortable. You do get that, you know, kind of IBS bloated type feeling, right? But that doesn't mean you have IBS. It just means that there's, you know, what we call gastroparesis is a very slow motility of food through the gut. Um, and again, once you start to restore energy, you restore your health, you restore your hormones, then eventually your digestion also kicks back into place and no longer do you have these problems. Yes, the the digestion piece is huge. And I was also going to touch on that when you brought up the vegetable consumption, like a lot of women, when they stop eating such a high volume of vegetables, I've, I've been there too, mm-hmm. where it was like a whole a whole head of cabbage or something just to like get enough just to feel full for at least a little while um but not eat as many calories so a lot of women are experiencing discomfort in other ways but I don't know they're like used to it or something like that and then they start to add in more simple um well like yeah just more simple carbs that are more calorically dense and are from like grains and those like typical fear foods in quotations and they experience more comfort digestive comfort they're not as and they're very confused because they're just like this isn't the message that i was told and that's just so interesting to me and and do you see that a lot in athletes you're like they they had this digestive issue and it's also gone away because they've actually moved away from this uh healthy eating obsession yeah oh <laughs> my god yeah no a hundred percent in fact i was yeah i was with a, a um, an athlete that i worked with yesterday and actually he's a he not a she mm-hmm. but um but it still actually had 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 very bad red so low energy availability and it had affected his hormones um but yeah i mean he he'd been told all sorts of things before he started working with me you know you've got IBS you need to go on FODMAPs you should never put somebody who is already restricting their intake and is already low in energy and low in weight on FODMAPs that should never happen ever and anyway we we've been working together just for not for a very long period of time but a short period of time and he's just like he literally just said to me I've been everywhere I've spoken to everybody but you just you you fix my stomach and I was like, well, no, I've just got you to restore your energy availability. You fixed your stomach. I didn't do anything. I just told you what to eat based on what you were doing training-wise. And he just he just couldn't believe it. Honestly, it's been years and years that he has struggled. And so 100%, that, that's the thing which I find fascinating is, you know, often, especially when it comes, this is sort of probably going a little bit off track, but especially when it comes to eating disorders specifically within sport, you know, if we understand that eating disorder is, it's a, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism. It's a way of denying uncomfortable feelings. It's a way of avoiding, you know, those, those fears around criticism and not being good enough and um, abandonment and rejection and whatever else. You know, all those, all those horrible emotions that we don't want to experience because they're just really horrible. But we have to because it's life. But a lot of people don't want to, don't know how to. And so... An eating disorder becomes a way of coping because you contain yourself within the realms of food and exercise and numbers. And that becomes a thing that you can fixate on and you can control. 
to a certain degree because you, you don't want to experience other things. So what's often interesting is that athletes go down this path because they have this whole fear of not being enough. They go in pursuit of worth and maybe they feel they can attain worth through body composition or through sporting achievement or, or whatever it might be. And this then ends up with them severely restricting and their relationship with food and exercise becoming more and more and more dysfunctional. So the whole reason they set out on this path was to be better, to be, you know, to be a better athlete, to perform better. But actually the path they choose means that they become, their, their performance deteriorates and often stagnates and then deteriorates completely and they become more and more injured. So when you then finally start to get them to understand this and you get them to help them to overcome the fear of rejection, the fear of failing, the fear of not being good enough, mm -hmm. and you get them to restore their energy availability, you get them to restore the, you know, their weight if it's needed to be restored, and they start to see the benefits to their performance. And they're like, oh my God, like I recover better between sessions and, and I can jump out of bed now and... And I'm seeing, like, I was doing all this stuff in the gym and I wasn't seeing any changes to my body composition. In fact, if anything, I was a bit fluffy. And now I'm like, I'm lean. And, it, and I can't believe I'm eating like three times the amount I was, but I'm leaner than I was. And it's like, yeah, hello, you need hormones to do all that. Yes. And when you don't have hormones, it doesn't do anything. So, yeah, it's always quite fascinating. It's, it's super fascinating. And I haven't talked about this a lot because it feel, I don't know why. I just have like feelings about it, I guess. But there for me, going into recovery, of course, super scary. What's gonna happen to my body? What's gonna happen to my identity? I'm going to like become a normal person. <laughs> no. And um, and it hasn't been the case. My I got my period back at a much higher um, like I got a similar, I had a similar body fat percentage, but then I also had a much higher amount of muscle I'm like significantly more muscular athletically I'm just recovering so much faster I am so much stronger and my mood is so much better and I'm just like a more pleasant person and the the transformation has been incredible and people do not expect it and they don't think that that can happen for them but I have just seen how like and I think I don't talk about it much because it brings a focus back to like your body and how you look. And, and that's kind of a big problem in the space. But the, but the truth has been for me is that I have a much higher self-perception now. I don't know if it's real or if it's in my mind, but it doesn't matter. It's there. And how often do you see that happen? Well, again, if we think about the role of estrogen and testosterone, you know, like Estrogen and testosterone are neurotransmitters. They help the uptake of serotonin in the brain. So they make you feel good, right? But that's something, again, important to remember. And we know this not just from the studies we've done on athletes and, and individuals, but also we know this from, from postmenopausal women. Because, you know, one of the first symptoms when somebody is going through the menopause is that they start to become quite low in mood and highly anxious and you know their cognitive function starts to deteriorate and that's because the estrogen levels are dwindling and, and eventually not you know they're not going to be very high at all so we know that estrogen has a really big part to play in, in mood and and i always find that interesting as well like so many of the people i work with are so low in mood and they're usually on antidepressants and it's it's kind of all 
again, it's that kind of catch-22. They're low in mood probably because they've got um, low estrogen levels, but they've got low estrogen levels. The, the low estrogen levels, of course, they're not eating enough, and that also affects mood. And makes you, I mean, when you're hungry, you're miserable, right? Let's just face it. You're not happy at all. When you're hungry, you don't sleep, which means you don't recover. So you're not good at all. Like, fundamentally, hunger is not a good thing. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. And yet, for some people, they'd much rather have that uncomfortable feeling rather than the discomfort of not being good enough or the discomfort of being a failure or, or whatever it might be. Well, they've like learned to associate that feeling of anxiousness or discomfort with like being on track and doing mm. hard. Like, if I feel this way, I if I feel hungry, I can like literally feel the melt fat, feel the fat melting off my body, and that equals a good thing. And you just have this weird association. Yeah, and and I think also there's an element of punishment there. I'm not mm-hmm. worthy, so mm-hmm. I will punish myself. There's this. It's it's complex, right? Eating disorders are right. complex, and there's no again. There's again similarly to there's no one exact fit mm. everybody's slightly different and and why they have an eating disorder why they don't and etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah i mean your, your your ability to think clearly is huge you know once you start to feed your brain not only are you feeding it with estrogen and hormones but you're also feeding it with with, with energy you're feeding it with glucose you've got to remember the body the brain needs 120 to 130 grams of glucose a day to function appropriately, right? And in, in times of restriction, or if you are somebody who is doing keto and not providing your body with enough carbohydrate, then, then the body will have to compensate. And, and at, your, at its lowest, it will use 80 grams of glucose a day. But that is still compromised, which is why we can't think straight, which is why we can't you know, we can't, the neurotransmitters don't transmit. There's some, there are some, there's some MRI scans that I use of the brain when I do some talks, um, which show um, the brain of, a, of somebody healthy, of somebody, the same person who is restricted, like can have anorexia type thing, and then when they're recovered. And you can see the changes in the brain. You can see the depth of the density of the neurons and the density of the white and gray matter in the normal and then how that disappears when you're restricted and then how it comes back but might not always come back completely but we don't know but we know in adolescence it can but we don't know if that later if you go through starvation restriction later we don't know how much how quickly it will take your brain to, to go back completely to normal so so there's, I think that's the thing that's always complicated is that there's the actual physical structural issues that occur, but then there's also the, the kind of psychological aspects, the thoughts, the behaviors. And you put those two things together and it is such a complex area to work in. And again, I go back to why I get frustrated when people think they know what they're talking about because 20 years, so it's taken 20 years of really, really researching, understanding, looking at my clients, reflecting on my practice, going away and reading the research, doing more and more degrees and more and more courses to mm. fully understand, discussing it with colleagues who are psychiat- psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, you name it. Like you have a proper network, you discuss these things, you understand it, and then you're in a position to kind of go okay yeah I think I can help you it's not just calories in calories out 
I wish it was, but it's not. Yeah, totally. A lot of what I get the opportunity to do is refer people because they come to me and they're like, help. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I can't really. But, um, you know, I've talked to all of these people now and I feel like this person might be a good fit for you and that kind of thing. But uh, I feel like just for a lot of people listening kind of are in that health coach space and they really do have the, um, the desire to help women with HA. And that's, that's great. I feel like the best way that we can do that is pointing them in the direction of professionals and giving, at least just giving that sort of, just like support. You're not Mm. alone. I understand you. And um, something that's just been successful for me has been sharing my story because I felt for so long, like I couldn't find another person with a similar one to me. And that was kind of it, right? Like that had the same kind of thought process like you were saying eating disorders come in all kinds of different ways and and different people are having different uh doing it for different reasons and afraid of different things and so I feel like there's value there for people to share their story and let other people resonate and not feel alone and then yeah we need to be like this professional can test your body <laughs> and help you 100 100 I I definitely am 100 behind raising awareness letting people realize it's not okay to not have a period talking about what your experience was because it may well resonate with someone like I have no issue with that at all I think it's brilliant and I know like we do we do some group work in our clinic as well like we we have small groups that we work with together and I know that the the men and women that work in those groups find it really helpful to feel like they're part of something, you know, that they're, they're, they belong to something where people understand them and don't judge them and don't, you know, again, it comes back to those fears and, and they're in an environment where they're understood and they can say anything, no matter how, how silly it might seem to, to everybody else, but to, they can say it in that group and know that somebody else is going to get it. So I completely think the community spirit is so, so important. And that's one of the reasons we started Train Brave is because you know, we can't change the culture within sport quickly, but we can provide support and we can provide a space where if people want to share their story and go, this was me, and it might prevent somebody else from going down that road. Like that's, that's the bit that I would love more is that people hear your story, Danny, they hear other people's stories and they go, oh my God, I can see myself going down this road. And they stop before it gets too far. Like, yes. that would be, that would be, that's the best thing. I think, I mean, I'm all for preventative medicine, mm. not reactive medicine. And unfortunately, we seem to live in a world where we react rather than we prevent. And if we can prevent, you know, life would be a lot easier and life would be a lot more fun, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we always have to be miserable first? Why can't we just skip that that stage? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you for that. We have three, three, four more minutes. So okay. I'm going to really try and cram in this um, one of these last two questions. Which one will it be? Okay. When working with athletes and you're, you're asking them to quit training or reduce training and to increase their energy intake and asking them to do that immediately is it's really hard like asking them to basically go from 100 to 50 percent to zero that's very challenging 
what conversations and strategies might you take to get them on board with making this transition? Um, that's a good question. I guess it's it's a case of first building trust because they have to engage in trust with you. So I think if you can always provide them with tangible data that can help a test we do the bones that we need to do to try and help them to see that actually they're not making it up. There is definitely something wrong. And then helping them to see the bigger picture and, and, the, and the kind of the longevity of the career, particularly like, you know, do you want to be a one hit wonder or do you want to be in it for the next 10, 20 years? And, and then really helping them to understand how that's going to happen. How do you be sustainable? How do you have longevity in your career? And then it's looking at the barriers and the limiting beliefs that are keeping them in that place. Like, you know, why? Why can't you do what I've asked you to do? What is stopping you? What, what's, the, what's the underlying issue there? So it's, it's, it's kind of getting into the root of the problem. You know, like, why is it that you need to do the training that you're doing? Why is it that you need to have all these food rules? And, and then breaking those down one by one and helping them to, to question them, you know, is there any evidence that what you think is correct? If there's no evidence, then where does it come from? How do we how do we change that for you? You know, so it's it's a long procedure. It's not a simple one. It's not like one that's fixed in, in one session. It's it's you know several sessions and lots of discussions and lots of conversations and many many emails back and forth usually. But use but but when they engage and they can start to see how it impacts them and how it improves their performance. Then they're going to go, they're going to, they're going to trust that process. Yeah. Lying out, laying out the evidence, especially for this um, particular group of people is often very helpful. And, and one of the big things I come across a lot is like, I just don't know if that's going to work for me, or I don't know if that's really my problem. And a lot of people kind of arguing with themselves about what, their real problem is so sometimes yeah just being able to lay out like well I've done these tests and these are the facts and you you may now be released of wondering because this is true and then now yeah let's just work through this story you have in your head of what it, it of what their this huge impact is going to be you're going to gain insidious weight you're going to lose your whole athletic career and sometimes like you were kind of saying when you look at the long picture in the grand scheme of things this is an investment and when you look at these, those athletes that have gone on for a really long time um, with their career, like uh, just Tom Brady or those athletes that are in this sport for a long time, when you look at their self-care regime and how they do not drive themselves into a hole, you can that can be aspirational for people. But it's so interesting that we're not, we're, it's just, we're not thinking of that. We really need help from someone else to help us see that. Mm, so that's cool. Thank you. Appreciate that. I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the show today. Where can people go? Where should they start to learn more about you guys and what you're doing over at Train Great? So I do a lot of, a lot of my um, education is on my Instagram. So r underscore McGregor is my Instagram and basically you will only really get education on there about all aspects of amenorrhea, reds, how to feel properly, 
mm-hmm. sports nutrition, you name it, that, that's what, what it's for. Um, there's also quite a lot of information on our my website, which is winniemcgregor.com. And then with Train Brave, Train Brave is part of winniemcgregor.com. So there's a whole section um, on the website about Train Brave. But we do have a separate Instagram account, which is train underscore brave. Um, and again, we just put quite a lot of um, educational information on there. We are, we also have the Train Brave podcast. So if anybody is um, just wanting a little bit more support or just kind of feels like they want to learn more, then we talk a lot there, a lot there about hypothalamic amenorrhea, how to train properly, how to come back from training when you've had hypothalamic amenorrhea, how to spot the signs, you name it, we cover it. We've also had a lot of great guests on there as well. So there's, there's lots of information on all those places without even having to book an appointment. So hopefully that will give people um, enough to start with. Thank you so much for that. No problem. Thanks for listening today. And if you want to get involved in the conversation with me, with other amazing women, just like the ones that you hear on the show, I recommend you get on the waitlist for the HA Society. It opens on the new moon of every single month. So if you're not on the waitlist, go to the show notes or just head to waitlist.thasociety.com or thehasociety.com or wherever you want to go and join on that waitlist. And whilst I have you here, I think it would be amazing if you left a review for this podcast. Rate and review the podcast. It helps give me clout, allows me to get more badass guests on the show and helps other women just like you find the podcast more easily when they're searching around the internet all confused why they don't have a period and it can help them find us in our little community that we have right here okay i love you have a good one